Hello, hello. Today we are chatting with the amazing Catherine and we're going to learn a bit more about her eating disorder recovery journey, including some risk factors and protective factors. So Catherine, how are you feeling today? Good. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, of course. Thank you so much for joining me. So could you please tell me a bit about yourself and your life story? I'm especially interested in learning how you became a speaker, an advocate for eating disorder awareness. Yeah, so I am an occupational therapist in my current day-to-day life. Um, I love my job. I work in community mental health, so I get to work with a bunch of amazing clients that are living in our community that just need a little bit of extra love and support. Um, But I guess to circle back, I have always been kind of that girl who felt a little bit out of place growing up. And I wasn't exactly sure how to go about making myself feel comfortable. Um, I guess I always felt like the overweight friend or kind of the one that was left out wasn't as included in things and kind of on the sidelines. I went on a trip through France when I was in my third year going into fourth year of university through my program at Western. I took kinesiology. So one of our courses was actually um, a sports course. So we got to go on a bike trip through France and got a credit for it, which was the best course that ever existed. And when I came back, I had naturally lost a little bit of weight and was feeling pretty good about myself and just liked feeling healthy and active and all of those things. And I decided to keep it going and I wanted to just continue feeling this way and feeling healthy. And um, I guess I noticed a lot more compliments coming in and that started to feed into everything. From there, I continued to do so in a very destructive pattern. I became, became, or began exercising a lot and under eating and continuously trying to kind of see, challenge myself, how much less can I eat today? How much more can I exercise today? And it became a pretty vicious game for myself. So I was 22 when this was all happening, 21 turning 22. And I kind of got lost in it all and it kind of swallowed me whole. And for the first time I noticed the compliments starting and it really just kind of fed that addiction for me. And for the first time I didn't feel like the heavy girl or the one that was overweight and I just felt seen. Um, But quickly those compliments shifted towards concern, but I didn't believe it. And I kind of lived in my own world. I ignored my family because what 21-year-old girl really listens to their family when they say that they're concerned and I just kind of blew them off. My roommates at the time were great and really tried their best as much as they could to sit me down and just chat about what they were seeing and how they were concerned and how the girl that they knew and loved was shifting to someone that they didn't know anymore. Um, so I kind of just ignored all of them and I continued down my path and I became more secretive about things. I lost a substantial amount of weight in five months was kind of the time frame. So from May until November and come November, I started looking into grad school applications for the following year. And I was looking for teachers that could give me a letter of reference. So I went to the teacher that took us on the trip to France and I asked him if he could write a letter of reference for me because I knew him personally through the trip to France and he had taught me in several other courses. And he looked at me and he said, I can write you this letter of reference. 
but what's the point if you don't even make it to graduation? And it was kind of in that moment that I knew that other people were seeing how I was feeling and seeing how severe things were getting. And he sat there and we both just cried in his office for a little while. And he said that he was very concerned and that he didn't care how many of his classes I had to miss a week if I was going to appointments or going to the doctors, that he would allow me to make up anything I missed and would provide me all the support that I could as long as I got to make it across the stage at graduation. So from that moment on, that was kind of when I knew I needed to get some help. Um, so I made all the phone calls that I could and I talked to, I tried to do more like the group routes and try and see what programs I could qualify for. And I tried to qualify for a few programs in both Guelph and London because I was living, my parents were from Guelph and I was in school in London. I just really wanted anything that I could as long as I could finish the school year in time, that was pretty important to me. And from there, I kept on getting letters of refusal saying that I didn't qualify for treatment, that my BMI wasn't low enough, that I wasn't, I guess, as sick as some other individuals that needed help. And I remember feeling this like deep feeling of just like shock and also just such confusion, just that I'm sitting here begging you to help me. Like I'm begging you on this doorstep to help me and you're telling me that I'm not sick enough. And it was one of those feelings like, so do I need to get sicker in order to get better? And like how broken is that, that I'm sitting here begging for help and I can't even get it. Um, I knew that getting sicker wasn't an option for me and that wasn't the route that I was going to go down. So I had a fantastic support team with my family. Um, my parents would drive to London at least twice a week to pick me up and take me back to appointments in Guelph. And I was able to do a bit more of a um, personalized team. So I found a private dietitian, a private uh, psychologist, and I saw my GP a lot. So between the three of them and my family, we kind of created this little care network and they all talked to each other and we really were able to develop a recovery plan that was the best for me. So I saw my therapist twice a week at the beginning. I saw a dietitian once a week and I saw my GP like once every two to three weeks, um, which was great and fantastic. And I was able to do things on my timeline so change was very scary for me at the time. So I knew that too much too fast would send me into a pretty big spiral. So I was able to do things gradually and slowly and make it comfortable for me so that I knew that as I was recovering, it was going to be something that I never, never turned my back on. And I was able to maintain that recovery for the rest of my life. So that's kind of how things started. And from then on, I just really worked hard at it. And it is easily the hardest thing that I have done and ever will have to do in my entire life. But it's also the most rewarding thing that I've ever done. It took me, I guess, a full year to be what they would consider weight restored. Uh, but was different for my recovery is that I was going from a place of being fairly overweight. And we didn't know where my body was going to normalize again. So kind of that balance of I didn't have a goal weight of where I should end up or where I, my body naturally sits. It was going to be a completely different set point. So it was 
kind of unnerving for me, not knowing when it was going to stop. So I get about a year in, that's when I was kind of had normalized my weight and um, stabilized it to the point that I felt my energy levels were back. Things were starting to work properly with my body again. Um, a lot of those immediate health concerns were gone, but the mental piece, piece was still there for sure. And I guess eight years later, there's still things that I struggle with, with the mental piece. And I don't know if that will fully ever go away. And, but my coping strategies for dealing with it are much healthier and much more sustainable. So I continued to see my therapist once a month or so. Um, and things were going really well. And I shifted to just kind of as needed and maintenance chats. And then I actually took a break um, after my master's degree for a few years. And then during COVID, life got hard and changes were crazy. And it the world was upside down. And I noticed that with all the uncertainty in the world, I started to crave control again. And I could see myself without being able to control anything that was happening in my day to day, working in frontline mental health and all of the things that were going on with COVID and all the restrictions, not being able to see the people that I loved. I found myself trying to control my body again. And I knew that at that point I couldn't let that happen. And that's a very slippery slope. So I reached out and I started talking with my therapist again, just to kind of make sure that we caught things early and I could get my mindset back on track. And since then I've still chat with her once a month just to kind of keep things just in check and just talk about all the things that are still bothering me. I, while being very physically much better, mentally a million times better, and I know all of the things, it's still really hard to put some of them into practice, um, especially with our society and things that we see and all of that, there's a very big lingering piece of not being worthy and not being enough and kind of fighting through that mental aspect of it. And that body image, that deep rooted body image concern is always going to be troublesome. So I just continue to keep that up. And I last year was approached by one of my old classmates who was running a youth group. And she was giving a talk. One of the topics for the week was eating disorders. And she had reached out and said, hey, like, I don't know how comfortable you are with any of this, but I don't have the skill set or the knowledge to feel ready or right to be presenting on this. So I was wondering if you would be able to kind of just share some words of wisdom. Like you don't have to explain your story, but you just have a bit more knowledge than I do. And I've always been very open about my struggles, my thinking behind it is I'd rather you hear it from me than talk about it behind my back and make your own answers. Um, so I was more than willing to do that. So I shared, I talked with, I think there was 10 or 12 youth, I would say under the age of 16, just about eating disorders and body image issues and kind of how we can reframe all the things that we see in today's world. And I loved it. And it made me feel really proud of where I had been and where I am now and from there I started kind of shifting a bit more towards advocating through my platforms and I don't have any large platforms but I, if I can educate any people in my life about how to better understand eating disorders or how to talk about bodies and food and everything in a way that 
doesn't cause anybody else harm, then that's more than enough for me. Uh, and I moved up to Kingston a year ago, just over a year ago. And there's this, was a recovery college that was starting at our hospital. So recovery college is a new kind of method of teaching and educating and also providing care where we as a hospital run this recovery college that any participants in the city can attend. You don't need a mental illness. You don't need to be a hot patient in the hospital. You can just sign up and attend. And they're all courses or information sessions or workshops on different mental health and well-being issues. So some of them are like watercolors to manage your stress or mental health CPR, how to deal with someone in a crisis. And I asked if I could run a group on eating disorders. So I ran a one-day seminar, or it was like an hour and a half, um, but it was just the one time in the semester, and we called it education. So it was all about eating disorder education. And from there, we decided to run it again the next semester because we had a good turnout and people just seemed interested and really willing to learn. So we ran it again this semester. And then next semester, we're running a four-week course called Body Talk. So we're going to be shifting about how to talk about our food and our bodies and everything in a way that's more body neutral and how to look at ourselves as wonderful human beings for who we are on the inside and the outside and not feed into the diet culture world of today, but also how to shift those conversations with our kids and our loved ones and kind of really incorporate that into the world. I love that. I love every, like the education thing. Is it like education? Like ed? Yeah. That's amazing. We love <laughs> That's awesome. So circling back a bit to that early beginnings in your life, could you please tell me a bit more about that? Could you please tell me a bit generally about your childhood or perhaps if you'd like why you felt out of place? Yeah, I, by all standard means, I had a great childhood. I came from a amazing family and it the home was filled with nothing but love at all times and my family and I are still extremely close all of us but I think in school I always felt like I had to try really hard to fit in um I was always kind of in the middle of the pack so I wasn't the smartest but I was smart so I always was trying really hard to do better or I wasn't the best at sports but I was good so I had to really work hard to play well and I think when it came to myself fitting in in my body, I never felt pretty, I guess, by those standards. I felt very overweight and kind of uncomfortable in my own skin and just noticed more. Like sometimes I'd be like the last person to be picked for things or I wouldn't get invited to certain events or sleepovers or I wasn't getting any attention from any boys in high school, as silly as it seems, but... I just noticed more I was never the front runner for a lot of things. And I was always that girl who had friends in every friend group, but kind of felt like the odd man out in every friend group. Absolutely. And I wonder if a lot of that ties back to the sense of perfection that Ed, the eating disorder, needs. What, oh, what do you think? Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. I fully can pinpoint, I mean, through a lot of conversations with people but my eating disorder was purely based on my need for control and my need to feel like I was enough and because I noticed it would always get really bad when when the world was breaking outside of me 
but it was the one thing that I could control was how much I ate and how much I exercised. I was just like grasping onto that need to control anything. And if I could control my body, at least made me feel a little bit like I was in control. When looking back on it, there was zero part of me that had any control in that situation and that my eating disorder had all of the control in the world. But it was just the way that I could cope with things. Absolutely. It's the paradox of control, the illusion of control, for sure. When you were young, though, and you said, you know, perfect childhood, like the family side in school, though, always felt like the odd one out. During that time as well, did you have a perception of your body or a body image as well? Yeah, I do. Um, I remember my first diet by those means and those words would have been in like grade five. I remember stealing or borrowing um, my one friend's mom was on a Weight Watchers diet. So we photocopied her book. And I remember trying to follow like a Weight Watchers diet in grade five when you're like a child. And there's no way you shouldn't be trying to shift your body in the slightest. Your body's still growing and developing and your hormones are growing and changing. And but I remember never liking how I looked. And I don't think I ever, I don't have a memory of ever liking my body. When do you think that perception of yourself shifted? I don't know if I ever had a good perception of my body. I don't think I ever really felt good. I Or I don't have a conscious memory of it. I think that I kind of grew up as a fairly negative person when it came to myself and my body. And I tried to ignore it and push it away. But I, I think it was always there. And I think bef- I would say probably from the time that I had the ability to make a decision, it wasn't just a beautifully naive child and not caring about what other people think I don't think there was a time where I felt really great about my own self yeah and I love how it's really that societal stigma that pushes us from being that having that naive positive perception of ourselves to then being filled with guilt and internalized shame and all of that but what were some of the challenges more explicitly that you faced because of Ed I was kind of an anomaly in terms of the normality of the timeline for eating disorders for girls. I developed mine fairly late in the game. While I think there's a lot of things that precursed in how I was feeling emotionally throughout my like late childhood and teen years, I didn't actually get sick until I was in my 20s. So I had a lot more um, big picture things that got affected. So I had, like, I had a partner at the time and he was incredible, but he was a 21-year-old boy who was thrown into supporting someone with an eating disorder, which was impossible. And I think that he deserves all the credit in the world, but I can't imagine how that felt for him in the moment. I know it took a big toll on things. My roommates and I really struggled because there was such a need for control of my own body, my own food, and it shifted from you're never eating and it's really hard for us to watch. And then like now look at like, you're always eating in the kitchen and like things are really stressful for you. Like you can't come out socially with us. And I couldn't participate in a lot of things that normal college and university students do in my fourth year. I couldn't go out for dinner with my friends or go out for drinks with my friends because I couldn't give up the control of needing to do my own thing. And being in a social situation like that really stressed me out because not only was I never going to eat at a restaurant, but I knew that everybody else was looking at me like, one, she's not eating. Look at how sick she looks. All of those thoughts kind of weighed on me really heavily. And that really affected my friendships. Um, somehow through it all, 
my schooling maintained pretty well. I was able to really focus on just making sure I went to class and that's all that mattered to me was just finishing the year at that point because I knew that I was eventually going to get through it all and I would love to just move forward. So I was just focusing on going to school and recovering. So I missed out on a lot of like really awesome life experiences. And I think that's what my eating disorder took for me the most was those, the little experiences that may have just seemed little at the time, but they're really what life is about. Like spontaneously stopping and going for ice cream after a hike with someone or just being able to like pop over and grab dinner or go hang out and have a glass of wine with your friends or sit with your parents and like have a drink on the patio and all of those little things in life that we take for granted I they were robbed of me for many years exactly I remember someone else who I spoke with they said that eating disorders really rob them of their life yeah if you're comfortable because yeah. I, I can only imagine how emotionally it was what your professor said the uh, professor who you went to France with mm-hmm. as well how would you say your eating disorder then especially at that peak made you feel and again feel free to to let me know as little or as much as you'd like mm-hmm. with this one I think I was constantly trying to make my body smaller in order to feel something but it just kept on making me feel emptier inside and I felt I was exhausted at all times of the day because I was waking up and working out for hours and hours on end yeah I felt really empty inside and I felt physically I was not feeling great I was tired all the time I felt just constantly exhausted because I was waking up and I was pushing myself physically to the limits but also I had no nutrients to feed me cognitively so I everything just took so much more effort I couldn't think straight and it just became really mentally and physically and emotionally draining um to the point at the end of the day sometimes my boyfriend at the time would have to carry me up the flight of stairs because I just physically couldn't do it and so I just remember constantly striving to get smaller to feel bigger and I couldn't nothing was ever going to be enough in order to make me feel something And I kept on thinking that I would just like myself more if I was five pounds lighter, or I would like myself more if I just proved myself that I could do an extra 20 minutes of exercise, but I never ended up liking myself more. So it was a vicious game that I was playing. Yeah. What you were describing reminded me of how I was feeling about like, if I took up less space, Mm -hmm. then I'd feel better. But like you were saying, it never worked that way. And I know you said that again, your boyfriend was there for you, your roommates, parents, and so on, and that dream team that you were describing. But what were some of the other strategies that perhaps you used to overcome the challenges and the feelings that you described? I really do think that one of the main reasons why my recovery was successful is that I I was able to be a very active part in my recovery plan. I got to do things on a timeline that even if it was the slowest timeline in the world, it was still the one that we were going to be using because it was the one that I felt comfortable with. So if that was increasing my food by even like 25 calories one week, and that was all I felt comfortable with, that was okay. So that level of comfort for me just 
and that shifting control into my hands so that I can help like control how I recover made it very sustainable for me. And I never had to fully give anything up. I knew that if I fully gave up exercising, I would, I would probably have not recovered while there was definitely limitations on to what I was going to do and wasn't going to do, I was able to at least move my body in some way every day and have that outlet of, even if it was just doing yoga one day, just to feel like I was stretching or going for a walk with someone, I didn't have to say no to those things in life because then recovery was the only thing that I could focus on. Absolutely. And I know that it is part of some inpatient programs, for instance, or even outpatient programs that you know, so-and-so person isn't allowed to exercise whatsoever. And that can be horrifying, especially if someone's whole identity is based on like that sort of movement or sport and so on. Did having that true sense of control then help with some of the feelings that you were describing? Not to put words into your mouth, but there was, from what I could hear, feelings of guilt and maybe shame as well. Um, Or what do you think? I think a little bit. I think not fully I think that I still struggled a lot with those feelings of not being worthy or being enough but I think that it helped me kind of it helped me understand the illness a little bit better being able to kind of work slowly at it and really understand the mental side of it too and work through that at the same time and really understanding how I was feeling didn't necessarily attribute to how much food I was putting in my body that there was something deeper behind it and But having that control of I can help be a part of this plan and I can help say what makes me feel good. And if I don't feel comfortable one week and it's scary, I can just say, can we do this next week? I just need to hang out here for one more week. It helped me feel like there was no timeline. And I think that's really important for recovery is that not everybody's timeline is going to be the same. And sometimes rushing that timeline can be more detrimental than anything else. So being able to say, like, we don't have to do this by tomorrow. We don't have to do it by next week. We can do this at whatever pace we want. It's okay. So that really helped me not feel guilty about taking the time that I needed to to recover. I love that. It's such a compassionate and gentle approach. And I really do hope it becomes a lot more of the norm. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Was there a particularly difficult moment in your life that you handled well and did doing so help you turn your life around in any particular way? It doesn't have to be about Ed, but some people like to talk about Ed for this question as well. I think a lot of the things that I've learned in the last 10 years of my life, I can look back on how I dealt with them with a lot of compassion because of my eating disorder. Um, I think it allowed me to also see that we all go through a lot of painful things in life and it's those painful things in life that allow us to grow into the most beautiful versions of ourselves and if we can give purpose to that pain it kind of takes away the pain and makes it something worthy and that's really how I've shifted a lot of things especially my eating disorder that I'll never be able to have that time back but I've shifted that pain into such a amazing purpose that it's really made it worthwhile for me and I would never go back and take away those years because I know they've made them made me into the person that I am today thank you thank you for that Catherine 
there's this expression that the body tells a story and mm-hmm. I think it speaks very nicely to everything that we've discussed so far, including that eating disorders aren't about food. They can be a physical manifestation of trauma, of all the different things that were going in our life. So if your body could tell a story, what do you think the spark notes or highlights of that story would be? Oh, that's a hard one. I think... You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I think our... I mean, our bodies really are... They carry us through life. And they've seen every up and down that we've gone through. Um, I think... One, I think eating disorders is the worst name in the world for this because mm-hmm. so little of it is actually about eating and food at the core of it all. It's just how it manifests and presents itself. But I think if my body were to tell a story over everything it's been through, it's that my while I've been able to go through a lot of hard things in life, I've still managed to, at the core of it all, stay very soft and stay very kind and compassionate towards others and not let the the things I've gone through harden me. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that softness? Like, how else would you describe it? I think the softness is just remaining open and being kind and mm-hmm. being willing to just give out so much love. I think all of this stuff has a really, it has the ability to really close you off and kind of make you this hard shell of a person who doesn't want to let people in and just wants to deal with everything on their own and not, not be able to show up and give back or exude love because you don't feel worthy of it. And I think the thing that I'm most proud of for sure is the fact that I've been able to throughout this all stay very soft and open and able to give out so much like kindness and love to the world and I think that's something that I I really value and how I've handled everything Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's wonderful thank you thank you so along the way afterwards you became a mental health speaker and you're describing that your friend reached out to you saying hey you know I'm not an expert at this would you feel comfortable coming to chat about eating disorders I'd love for you to do some time travel now and go back to first giving that talk could you please tell me how you were feeling before you went on to give this talk on eating disorders I remember being terrified um <laughs> it, it's a very vulnerable thing it's one of the hardest times that I've ever gone through in my life and it's a part of me that it's not that everybody knows about mm-hmm. not I don't love to walk around with the label on on me saying hi my name is Catherine and I've had an eating disorder mm-hmm. and while I'm really open about it it's not something that comes up often in conversation no. so it's something that's scary to talk about because you also don't know how other people are going to feel or think about it mm-hmm. and have that oh, so this is nine years later and I look at you and you don't look sick, so how do you know what you're saying? And there is still that stigma associated with it. And I remember feeling worried about giving the talk a little bit because there are days that are still really hard. And there are Mm -hmm. days that, like, you have to really work 
at recovery, even though you're nine, 10 years into it. Mm-hmm. And it's not always easy. Like 99% of my days is the easiest decision I have to make in the morning. But there's still 1% of those days that it feels impossible. Yeah. And while those days get like further, it's like further between and there's fewer of them, they still happen. And I really have to give a lot of self-talk about that doesn't, just because you have those days doesn't make you unqualified to give this talk. It doesn't make you like, I felt almost like an imposter of like, well, I'm not perfect by recovery and I still struggle. So how can I be giving a talk on recovery? And I had, I was sharing these feelings with a friend of mine and she's like, but that's what makes, that's what makes it honest. There are still days that are hard for you and there are still things that are tricky for you, but it's when people hear that, they know that they're also not alone and that they don't feel like they're perfect in their recovery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that really helped. But yeah, I remember being very nervous at first. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I feel that 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 sense of oh, I'm such a hypocrite. I'm not perfect yet. I'm I'm not fully recovered yet, whatever that means. And yet I'm here giving a talk to this crowd. Yeah, yeah. and knowing knowing so much about the recovery process and about like working in mental health and addictions, I know have that background knowledge of so much of that information and I know exactly how I should feel and what I should be doing, but I still struggle sometimes to shift those thoughts. Mm -hmm. So being Mm -hmm. able to say like, we should all just be very neutral about our bodies and our bodies are the least important thing about us and this and that. But knowing that some days I still don't feel that way, having to shift that, that doesn't make me, a liar or a hypocrite it just means that I'm I'm still struggling some days and I'm still in recovery and it's it's more than okay yeah it's just normal and that's awesome mm-hmm. I think shifting that mindset was really important and what were some of the ideas thoughts or feelings that you wanted to convey through your story I know you said that recovery and the difficulties of recovery and that authenticity was a huge factor but were there any other main ideas that you wanted to share I think that we are very undereducated on eating disorders as a society in general especially in the medical field like eating disorders are the second leading cause of death next to opioid overdoses Mm -hmm. and the fact that you could go up to anybody on the street and chances are they could name you two types of eating disorders out of like the eight. Like it's, it's astounding. Um, I really wanted to be able to create an open dialogue of ask questions and have everybody's feelings heard while also providing some education on eating disorders as a whole for those who don't know. And I really want to break down that barrier of, diet culture and how we talk about food in our bodies and how we're told that we need to look a certain way and eat certain things and do all of these things just to fit the mold of what we're supposed to look like according to somebody in this world who thinks (laughs) they know all but we don't and we shouldn't and not everybody should have to fit in this mold and how our bodies don't matter it's One of the biggest experiments and the things I do in all of my talks is I ask people to think of the three people that they love the most in this world and to Mm -hmm. list the five things that they love the most about them. 
And then we look at the list and there's not a single physical attribute on their body, on their list. Absolutely. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. if the people that I love the most in this world, I don't love anything about their body the most, then why am I so worried about what my body looks like when the people that love me the most don't care about it? And if somebody really cares about what my body looks like or any of that, they probably aren't someone I want in my life anyway. Mm -hmm. So I think shifting that mindset as a whole and trying to work towards just being more compassionate to ourselves is what I would love to do. Thank you. And I love that experiment. What do you think the impact of that experiment is on your audience? Or what do you think the impact of the talk overall has on the audience? I think it's a a pretty good reaction from what I've seen so far. It's one of those like, oh, that makes sense. We don't really think about it that way until until we're we're supposed to or told to. Because when I think of the people that I love the most in this world, like my sister, she's the kindest human. She's always there when I need her. She'll call me just to chat about the most random things and it always makes me laugh. But I I don't think about how she looks when I think about her. I think about the, the things she is and the wonderful human she is. Yeah. And realizing how much that matters in my life versus what anybody else's body looks like or what my body looks like can be really, it can take a weight off of us. Yeah, thank you. And do you think you ever have to adapt or tailor how you tell your story? Or is it the same narrative, just perhaps told a bit differently? No, I do think I have to tailor my story. Um, I try not to provide any details that could lead to being triggering. So I try and avoid talking about numbers in particular. I try and talk about the specific strategies that I used. Um just because it's it's not helpful to anybody to know how much weight I lost. It's also not helpful to anybody to know exactly the strategies that I did to lose the weight. So I try and take that out of my story as much as I can. There are times in like more clinical settings that it can be important, but not for the general public. Um, I also, depending on the age of the audience, might take out some things that they might not really understand or might not be important to them at the time. Um, if I'm talking more to like university students or older students, sometimes it's, it is important to talk about the effects it had on my relationships more because they're at that stage of that's where they're at. So I can try and really tailor it to the age groups that that's there and the kind of what they're there for. So I've given some to parents so I can really shift it to how my parents felt through asking them and what they wish they knew when they were supporting me. I try and give as much tailored information as I can. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and I'm excited to talk about parents afterwards as well, because <laughs> um, <laughs> it's so important of uh, so important to be part of the recovery process. Mm-hmm. At least I notice through my experience. And if we can do some time travel one last time, mm-hmm. could you please imagine, say, the last time you gave a talk where you felt particularly proud of how you delivered that talk? And could you please perhaps share? What was going through your head, how you were feeling, what you were thinking? My last talk that I did, I saw somebody just sitting in the back that was just more taking notes and was really quiet. And I wasn't really sure kind of if it was disinterest or if it was 
and just kind of being there just to be there. And afterwards, he came up and he said that he has a younger daughter and he just wants to learn all that he can because he wants to be able to support her when she's learning these things through society and try and have healthy conversations with her and all of these incredible things. And it just, it brought tears to my eyes. That's amazing. And just thinking of like, and he's like, I just want to make sure I'm doing enough. I was like, the fact that you're here and learning and trying to kind of have these healthy conversations from the beginning is more than incredible. Mm -hmm. And that to me, if that's the only person that I ever affected all of this, then it's already worth it. That's so wonderful. And again, this might also be a tricky question, but as advocates, we often give our talks over and over again. Mm -hmm. But like you were describing with this experience, you might have one person have that sort of reaction and it'll really make you feel a certain way. So even nowadays, after presenting your story, after presenting your talk, what are some of the emotions that you have? What are some of the thoughts that you think of? I still get very anxious and nervous to actually tell my story from the beginning. So mm-hmm. I've noticed I tend to write it down and then read it more as opposed to free kind of spelling it. Mm-hmm. Mostly I want to make sure that all the points that I have in my mind can really be translated into conversation. Yeah. But I still, every time I give it, I feel this great amount of pride. Um, yeah. for being able to have worked through all of that and be standing where I am and this mm-hmm. confidence to be able to share my story which I never would have before but also this great amount of bravery and self-compassion for going through it all and looking at it in a hindsight perspective mm-hmm. thank you if we can talk a bit more about society now mm-hmm. I know we were alluding to this a bit as we chatted, but what do you think are some key misconceptions and myths that people have about eating disorders? Oh, there's so many. (laughs) People think that there's only two types of eating disorders, that Mm -hmm. there's bulimia and anorexia, when it's so much more compounded and complicated than that. There's so many more types that we don't hear about that are actually more prevalent and but they're not as easy to depict so we don't see them in the media we don't see them on movies and we don't see them getting the attention I think people really only think that you have to be underweight to have an eating disorder when eating disorders come in every single shape and size and all of the things in between and that most people that have an eating disorder aren't underweight and I think that shocks a lot of people mm-hmm. um, mostly I think that people really don't have a good understanding about the mental aspect of a meeting, an eating disorder because it's called an eating disorder so mm-hmm. it would be as simple as you just need to start eating mm-hmm. and if I had a quarter for every time somebody told me that I just needed to eat I think I could retire at the age of <laughs> so it's definitely so much more than that Mm -hmm. and we don't Mm -hmm. talk about that nearly enough 
yeah I'll give you my quarters as well and then we'd both be able to like have a foundation in our names and just like retire for the rest of our lives it would be fantastic (laughs) it would be stunning I fully agree what do you think is a better way to think about eating disorders you've alluded to this but how would you say it uh, more explicitly I think we need to shift away from a short-term fix I think our medical system especially we think about okay we just need to get them in and get them fed and then send them home and not thinking about the sustainability of that I think we need to shift into really considering it more of a mental health condition first and a physical health condition second because if I'm being really honest the physical health part of it gaining weight was the easy part the all the other things that came along with it were the impossible pieces that took years to work through I if I all I needed to do was just eat to gain weight and then have been better I could have done that very quickly and very easily but that's Mm -hmm. not that's not what it is and that's it's not that easy Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and again I think that just shows how it is such a deep-rooted disorder. It goes back to all those seeds that were planted mm-hmm. years ago that you were describing in your childhood as well. So absolutely, it, it can take time. That's why having that sustainable plan that you were mentioning is so, so important. You were also alluding to this earlier when we were chatting that, oh, if if only it was a topic of conversation, if only it was easier to talk about What do you think makes eating disorders so difficult to talk about or to educate people about? I think it's because eating and exercise, if that's what a part of a person's eating disorder, they're part of everybody's life. So it's hard to talk about something that you're supposed supposed to be doing in (laughs) your day-to-day life and explaining why it's hard. I mean, we're from like the day that we're born, we're learning how to like put nutrients in our body so it's very backwards for someone to try and explain the fact that that's the hardest thing that they can do when it's the most primal thing that they can do and I think they're scary because you don't understand them and you don't see them and you you can't really understand it unless you've been through it and there's so much shame of not feeling like you're good enough and not feeling like you're worthy that trying to explain it and feeling like you're a burden because people don't understand and it's just easier to go through it on your own than it is to ask for help. It's that whole, that compounded piece of that eating disorder, that kind of that devil on your shoulder saying like, why would you tell them that they're just going to think like they're going to think that you're a burden. They don't, they don't have time to help you. Yeah. 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 And again, goes back to that, not feeling good enough, not feeling worthy enough Mm -hmm or deserving of that help absolutely and I know that earlier on you said that you know you have that dream team uh, and you meet with your therapist and your team as needed as well and you also use uh, self-talk especially on those tricky days are there any other steps that you take to protect yourself from from those thoughts from Ed nowadays Yeah, I think I've learned what protects my peace and how I can really clear my head. I love hiking so much, but I also really like solo hiking more than anything. I love to just be alone Mm. in nature with my thoughts and really be able to kind of center myself again. 
and really kind of work through some of those pieces and just kind of be, I guess, when nobody else is around me and it's it's just me. And I also, I think I've really learned the value of feeling your feelings and that mm-hmm. every feeling that comes through my mind is valid and okay. And if I try and ignore it, it's not going anywhere. It's just going to come back yeah. up when it's kind of deep rooted and it's going to come back up in a way that I don't want it to. But if I allow myself to just feel it and understand it and then let it pass, then that's kind of how I'm going to move through things and not feel shame for any of those feelings at all. Mm-hmm. That's so lovely. If you're comfortable, could you please tell me a bit more about that solo hiking? And is, is, is that a space where you can feel those feelings and digest those thoughts and so on? Or yeah, what is it about hiking? your job yeah it is it's I think being out in nature is really helpful for me in that fresh air and just kind of that peaceful Mm -hmm. feeling about being out in the woods but it's a place where I I don't feel reachable almost I don't feel like I have people that I'm supposed to be giving anything to in that moment that I can really just focus Mm -hmm. on myself and kind of just walking on a trail and knowing that I can put one foot in front of the other and just make my way Mm -hmm. through and how that's kind of how I want to get through life is just, just keep, keep walking on my trail. And Mm -hmm. it kind of all circles back when I was, when I crossed the stage at my graduation, that same professor stopped me on stage and he gave me the biggest hug. And all he whispered in my ear was, you made it up your mountain because we always said that I would make it up the mountain. Like we did in France when we were biking. So now it's just I can take my steps and just continue making it up whatever mountain I'm facing that day. I love that, Professor. <laughs> Me too. Way. He was the- <laughs> <laughs> that is wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. And now let's talk a bit about the future. What are your hopes for future eating disorder prevention programs in schools or society overall? It would be my dream if I could work within the school system in some capacity to bring even a course to some of the health, like the health classes there and just really Mm -hmm. talk about it in an open manner and not have it be this kind of forbidden word that we don't talk about or that we Mm -hmm. don't understand from not only a support standpoint, but from a lived experience standpoint there's so many individuals that even if it's not a full-blown eating disorder are struggling with some sort of disordered body image issue or some form of like disordered eating. And if we can just talk about it more openly and really allow ourselves to have this deeper understanding, compassion towards people, then maybe we can shift kind of how destructive this, this whole thing is. So I would love to be able to kind of integrate into high schools especially and kind of start that there mm-hmm. and kind of hopefully shift it to a bit more education in our healthcare system too and so what would you say as promised talking about mm-hmm. parents now what would you say to the parents of children who might be having eating disorders or disordered eating again recognizing that each person's experience is unique um, but is there something that you could say to them to give them hope I think knowing that it's a really long road I think if going into it thinking that it's just going to get better quickly is 
a false illusion and can really make you feel defeated. So knowing that recovery takes time and it's a roller coaster. There are going to be so many ups and downs throughout the entire process. But eventually things get easier. But you really just can't rush it. And you just need to allow the time it takes. And the most helpful thing that you can do for someone is just be there with them in that moment. So whether that's sitting with them at the table while it takes them an hour and a half to eat dinner or just allowing someone to just cry for a while or just understanding a little bit more about eating disorders as a whole. So maybe educating yourself a little bit and trying to ask questions and say, okay, I see that this is really hard for you, but can you explain to me why this is hard so I have a better understanding of what's going on in your head so I know how best to support you? And I think the really important thing for parents is that they're not alone and that there's so many resources out there for caregivers and families. And it's so important that they're also talking to someone, whether it be a friend or another family member, but they need to be able to work through that with somebody else and that they're, they don't have to take on this massive burden just by themselves and that everybody, everybody is going to work through it together. Yeah, the idea that we are stronger together and parents definitely deserve that support. Yeah, and I think it fosters really great conversations moving forward. I know I can Mm -hmm. now talk to my parents about the really hard times, but also how it's affected things as a whole. And knowing that I I have such a great relationship with my parents that I can sit them down when it's time for my sister and I to have children and say, this is how I would really like for food to be talked about in front of my children and kind of set those boundaries and but say it from a way of we've been through this we just want to create a really healthy model for all like the young ones that we're going to be growing up in this world and they're so open-minded to that and it just makes fostering those conversations so much easier because we are able to have them when things were hard it's amazing thank you and what would you say to the young ones what would you say to children, youth who might be experiencing disordered eating or eating disorders? I think that our bodies really are the least interesting thing about us. And there's so much more to a person than how we look on the outside. And our bodies will constantly be changing and ebbing and flowing in every sense of the word. But at the end of the day, they're your home and we only have one. So why not just kind of give it some Mm self-love thank you right so now to very sadly end our conversation I'm going to mention some phrases and I'd love for you to complete them does that sound good yeah amazing right so phrase number one if I've learned one thing in life that is the world is going to throw a lot at you that could harden you and close you off and it's really important to just stay open and soft Mm -hmm. thank you the hardest thing about eating disorders is it's a constant journey that will always take a little bit of work Mm -hmm. and last but not least something I would say to the younger version of myself is you'll give this pain a purpose one day I love that Thank you so, so much again for chatting with me today. Is there anything that you wanted us to chat about that you think we didn't have the opportunity to? 
No, I just want to thank you so much for doing this. It's incredible. Well, thank you. <laughs> okay, hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. Bye.